Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see what you would have us to, to learn from this. And let your Holy Spirit be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, last chapter, we started out with David lying to the priests about being on a mission for Saul and getting food and, and this sort of uh, Goliath. And then we saw him try to run away from Saul by going to Gath, <laughs> looking for you know, protection in Gath. And they recognized who he was, and he had to act like a crazy person. Uh, if you remember, it said he was scratching at the doors and, and letting spit run down his beard and everything. And so we saw in the last chapter two lies that David was telling. And we talked about the fact that David had a little bit of trouble, at least in his younger years, with telling the truth. And we're going to know that he didn't tell the truth much better later on. Uh, he, had, he had a lot of problems with truth, but yet he was a man after God's heart. God's grace protected him in most cases. So chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and his father heard of it, they went down to him and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became the captain over them, and there were with him four hundred men. And David went thence to, to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray you, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do with me. Then he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. So we're going to stop there and take a look at this, this section. All right, we had David tell the lie to the priest. He went to Gath, he, and it says in this, you know, David departed from there. He departed from Gath. I got away with his life, you know, when they probably, when we talked about how David was probably uh, public enemy number one with all the people he'd killed in, in uh, the Philistines. And yet he got away because he made himself look like a crazy man. And... Uh, and it says, he went and he hid in the cave of Adullam. And we don't know exactly where Adullam is. It's kind of, they believe that it's in the place, place between Bethlehem and Hebron. Uh, in there, they know there's a lot of limestone caves all through that area. Uh, there's some indication that it might have been a city. But we know that the cave of Adullam plays later on where Saul is and David meet. So it probably is the cave. You know, I don't really believe the ones who try to make it a city. But it says he went to the cave of Adullam and hid. And we think about this. What are we supposed to do when we get into trouble? We're to run to Jesus and hide in Jesus. And this is what David's doing. He's hiding. Jesus is the rock. He's the sure foundation. And, and he's hiding. And it says that when his brothers and his father heard of it, they came down to him. And we think about this. Saul is a tyrant. He can't get hold of David, so the next best thing he's going to do is go after David's family. And it doesn't say specifically that that's what did, what's going on, but they're going to David, which means there's some pressure on them. Now remember, when David killed Goliath, his family was supposed to not have to pay taxes and all these other things, and here they're having to run for their lives. And we know that this is, they're running for their life because David says, okay, you know, mom and dad, let me put you out of the country because he goes to Moab. And Moab is on the east side of the Jordan. And he goes to the king of Moab and says, hey, you know, my parents need a safe place to stay. Can they, can they stay with you? And uh, 
that king says yes. Now, I don't know why that king said yes, but he says yes, and this takes them out of Saul's reach. Because the only way Saul can get to them is to attack the Moabites, which he's having enough trouble with the Philistines, and he doesn't need another war going on with the, with the Moabites. So David protects his family, and it says that everyone that was in distress, or you know, literally here that uh, means that they're bitter in their soul, and they were in debt, and he that was in straits showed up for David. Now, this isn't literally everybody, but it says he gathered up basically a ragtag army. Everybody who is in trouble with Saul <laughs> comes to David, okay? They're in debt. That means they're going to be thrown into prison. They're, they're, they're bitter with their circumstances. They're discontented, and they go to David, and he becomes their captain, and it says about 400 people gather with him. Now, if you can imagine this, I don't know how big this cave was, but 400 people with David. Yeah, I don't know that all of them were in the cave, but it, it could be there's some big caves that, that could be going in, and some of these caves were very large in that area. But David is building a group of people that is looking at him as their captain. And you know, it's a ragtag group. It's not, they're not professional soldiers. They're, they're just people that aren't happy. They're looking for something. And they don't know what they're doing, and yet they come to David. And David, in this case, represents Jesus, who says, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and you know, those that are poor, those that have that needs. And, and Jesus is right there saying, Come to me. And the problem that we end up with is most of the time, we have to hit the bottom before we finally decide to come to Jesus. Well, you know, God, I can, I can do it. You know, nothing I'm doing is working, but God, I can, I can make it. You know, God, yeah, I, I know these sins are really good dragging me down, but, you know, I'm, I am going to overcome them. And eventually, we get to the bottom and say, you know, hey, nothing's working. And the sad thing is, testimony after testimony is that same thing. I, I did it my way, and it failed, and I, had to, and I decided to come to God. Now, a handful of people become Christians as a child, and, but even most of them go off and do dumb things as they grow up, and hit bottom and say, well, gee, I better go back to God. Only a handful of people really stay pretty smooth across, across the way, and that's God's grace. <laughs> you know, it really is God's grace that they, they make that decision. But even those don't really have it all that smooth. They just have a different set of sins that they have to deal with, because all of us have to deal with sin. Uh, I was listening to one of the pastors today, and he was talking just about that, how everybody is a sinner, and they have to recognize it. And the problem is there's lots of people in churches that don't think that they're sinners or don't think they're a bad sinner, okay? And usually that's what it comes down to. I'm just not a bad sinner, you know. Uh, all I'm having to deal with is pornography and, and bad thoughts. You know, I'm not, I'm not going and getting drunk and sleeping around and, and stealing. You know, I've just got these little, little problems. <laughs> and God says, no, those aren't little problems. And we've got to really begin to understand we need to all deal with sin, always. Because we're always going to have these problems in our life and we need to be able to turn to God and say, God, it is sin. Because that's the first step is recognizing that it's sin. When I don't recognize it's sin, I'm not going to fix it. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. Because there's people out there that are drunks and, and addicted to drugs and sex and everything else that don't really think that they're sinners. They just you know, have some consequences they don't like for their <laughs> lifestyle. You know, I just like getting drunk, and I, you know, I, have, you know, I have a good time while I'm there. I can't remember what I did, but I, and I'll pay for it the next day by not being able to you know, you know, get around and have my headache and whatever else. <laughs> or you know, I'm going to 
be sexually active and take my chances on sexually transmitted disease. No big deal. It's just the consequences of my action until they get it. And God is saying, no, recognize that it's sin and put it before him. You know, when we have these problems with lustful thoughts or anger or, or lying, those are just as bad as any other sin, have consequences, and we have to recognize that they are sin. And we've all been there where we didn't recognize our sin as sin. And the thing is, we have to recognize it as sin and come to him and surrender it. And some sins are, are a higher impact than others. I mean, granted, you know, somebody who is getting drunk all the time is probably going to have greater consequences than somebody who's just a liar. Now, we see that David's lies have a great consequence, so lies have consequences. But, you know, in general, we think of, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm a thief, I've got, you know, great, greater consequences than, than if I'm a gossip. Okay, uh, now being a gossip has some great consequences. You know, eventually people stop trusting you. <laughs> you know, and so we end up here and he says, David gathered, well, actually he didn't gather, people gathered to him. <laughs> 400 people in there, so he basically has a small army. You know, he has a small army around him. They're not well trained. He's going to have to teach them how to, to fight as he's going to go forward in this. And then David takes care of his family. Mom and dad, you know, mom and dad, let me get care, you know, take care of you. We're going to put you in the protection of another king. So we see David's love for his family, love for his father and his mother, and saying, I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to protect you. And he does. Now, it doesn't say anything about his brothers. Now, his brothers are old enough that probably he's given them a choice. You can join me and my, my band of people, or you can take your choice, but mom and dad, I'm going to take care of. Uh, now, the brothers weren't nice to him anyway that much, you know, because remember when he went out to fight Goliath, you know, going out to Goliath, we know how naughty you are. When you just came down here to see the battle, you know, why don't you go, why don't you go back home to those few sheep that we have? So, yeah, you know, he probably really didn't care that much about what was going on with his brothers. Or his brothers had fought in the battle. They were, they were soldiers, so he probably figured, yeah, hey, you know, my brothers can handle themselves. If it comes down to it, they can... They can protect themselves. They can join me and my group. They can go back to Saul's army, whatever. They can, they can take care of their mom and dad. You know. And it could be that he understood that if Saul got hold of mom and dad, he was, he was probably more likely to surrender than if, they, you know, well, you got my brother, big deal. Go ahead and do what you want to my brother. You know, it's, uh, and I don't know, it doesn't say that, but I kind of kept that feeling in there that, you know, you know, older brothers didn't treat him too well. I don't think he would have gone out of their way to rescue them. But mom and dad, that was a different story. So he protects mom and dad. And it doesn't come straight out and say that they were being oppressed by Saul, but I really, you know, tyrants go after, if they can't get the person they want, they go after their family and friends. And that's been what happens over and over again in places of persecution and they go on. If they can't get, if the government can't get hold of the pastor or the person who's really active, they'll go after their family to try to get them to stop. And this is what happens all the time. And I think Saul was doing that. He was targeting, or David believed that he would, but they sought him out, which tends to tell us that Saul was already putting some pressure on them. And it might have started out real simple, just tell us where your son David, you know, where, where is David? And then it was got, well, you better tell us or else. And the or else got to the place where, well, we're going to just go join David and, and get away from Saul. And so we see this whole process of the family being taken care of, and David putting them basically out of the country. Okay? He takes them from where he's at on the west side of the, the Jordan River, crosses the Jordan River, has to head a little south to, along the, 
eastern part of the Dead Sea to get to Moab. And we don't know exactly where this city is in Moab, but uh, it might have just been a stronghold. And he says, you know, hey, king, would you protect, would you keep my family here? And uh, the king agreed. All right, verse 5. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get you into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came unto the fortress of Herath. And when Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah, under the tree in Ramoth, having his spear in his hand, and his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of David give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you captains over thousands and captains over hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that shows me that, that my son hath made league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that, are, are, that is sorry for me or shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And so we see here Saul. <laughs> David's told by the prophet, get up out of this place, it's not a safe place. And this is kind of an interesting thing. God frequently uses the prophets to warn their, the men of God. Uh, Elisha told the king all the plans that the enemy had, and so much so, it was so accurate, so, so valid, that the king was accusing his own people of being spies. You know, and their king said, you know, who is it that keeps telling this king, what's going on? They go, no, king, it's not, it's not what you understand. It's the prophet. God speaks to the prophet and tells him everything that you want to do. And so they decide to go try to arrest Elisha. And we have a whole long story about how Elisha is delivered from, God's, you know, from them by God's hand. So we see Gad, a real prophet of God, telling David, David, this is not a place to be. Now we know, here we don't know much about Gad, but we know that Gad is going to show up later on. Uh, Gad uh, gives David a prophecy later on when David sins by counting the people. He counts the people to see how strong he is in 2 Samuel 24. And Gad comes to him and says, you know, David, you did wrong. And God gives you three choices. You can, and I can't remember the top three choices, but it was like, you can have three days of plague. You can run, run from your enemy for a certain amount of time or, you know, or go to war and lose this many people. And David basically falls on his face and says, God, you know, I put myself at your mercy. And again, it shows consequences for sin. And for, for somebody like David, who's a leader, his consequences affect the people more than it affects him. And because he loves his people, it, it really affects him. And this is the problem that we have. Sin always has a consequence. Always. And in David's numbering of the people, it cost him thousands of people's lives because he, because he numbered the people. You know, and that's kind of sad because almost inevitably our sin does not just affect us. It affects our family. It affects our friends. It will affect the church. Our sin has consequences that don't just bother, you know, if it was just us, it probably wouldn't be that big a deal. But, you know, when you sin and it affects your family, that's a pretty big deal if you care about your family at all, and most people do, but it affects their family. David, it affected the nation that he loved, that he was the king over. And we're going to see at the end of this chapter that his sin at the previous chapter of lying to the prophets is going to 
cost people their lives. You know, this is a big deal. And David runs out. And when Saul hears that David's there and he's getting a, getting a, getting a group of people, you know, in verse 7 he says, you know, Here now, you Benjamites, will this son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you captains of a thousand and captains over a hundred? Because, hey, you're my people. I'm, I'm going to reward you. You know, David would have rewarded people by their deserving of it. And Saul saying, you know, I'm going to keep, all, I'm going to keep my, my tribe happy. Now, Benjamin, I'm going to give you the best fields. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you positions of authority. Whether you deserve it or not, it's another story altogether. I'm just going to give it to you. You know, you think this son of Jesse would do that? You know, he's, a, he's from Judah. You know, he's not going to care about you. And, you know, we see this attitude that Saul has. Saul is not doing what's best for the country in his decisions. He's promoting his people whether they deserve it or not. He's chasing after David to kill him, and David hasn't done anything. He's doing what he wants to do. And this happens so often when people get into power, if they don't recognize godly servanthood in their leadership, they do what's best for them. And this is why Jesus said, you know, tell the disciples, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to be last. You need to be the servant of all. True leadership does lead. Okay, it doesn't mean that that person is not going to make decisions, isn't going to lead, but they do it with the other person in mind. What is good for the other person always? And that's good leaders. You know, poor leaders always do what's best for them. And that's human nature. We almost always will do what's best for us. And true godly worship leads us to do what's better, best for somebody else. And this is important because, you know, David is not conspiring against Saul, but Saul sees him as conspiring against him and is treating David miserably, telling his people, you know, hey, you know, he's not going to promote you guys. I'll, I'll promote you, but he's not going to promote you. And then he gets even worse on this, and he says, for all of you, all of you have conspired against me. You know, Saul is paranoid. He is so paranoid, he's gone, he's gone crazy. David's out to get him. All of his, all of his people, that he says, I'm going to promote you, and, da and David won't promote you, but you're all conspiring against me. You know, which means he's not going to promote them in the first place. He's telling people what they want to hear. And this is a dangerous place for us to be. We don't want to tell people what they want to hear. We need to speak the truth to people. And that's not necessarily going to go over well. It's... You know, it's not going to go over well because sometimes we have to admit that we've made mistakes. It's going to admit that there's going to be consequences. There's going to admit that there's bad things coming down the pike. And we need to be able to say, this is, this is the truth. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And it really is true. When we speak the truth, even though we're going to face consequences for it, we do end up with freedom. Because we're not now compounding lies upon the activity. Well, you know, I really screwed up. Now I got to go face the music. And when we face the music, we might get grace, we might get mercy, we might get full full weight of the <laughs> consequences. But God says, don't add to it. Don't add to the don't add to the problems. And this is very important. We make a mistake and we own up to it. And our human nature says, hide, run, <laughs> get away from it. And all that does usually is make the consequences worse when everything catches up with us. 
It's much better just to stand up and say, hey, you know, I did this, this is what I did, this is, you know, I'm ready to take the consequences. And courts oftentimes will take that into consideration. God takes it into consideration, but even in real, in, in real life, the courts, if they see true remorse in somebody, usually will say, okay, we're going we're gonna to be lenient on you. If they don't see that remorse, they basically throw the book at you. And we, we all understand that. If somebody's really remorseful, we, we feel like, okay, you've paid your, you know, you, you've paid, you understand that what you did is wrong. And, and even we as individuals are more likely to say, okay. But it's so easy for us to say, well, I'm just going to run from the problem. I'm going to go hide. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this. So I'm just going to run and hide. All the people gathering with David are that way. Okay, remember, they're, they're in debt, they're, they're discontent, they're, they're bitter. So what are they doing? They ran away from their problems and went to David. Okay, so it's not a good thing that all these people have come to David. Now, David being a picture of Jesus is, you know, in this case, is, is, there, is there a person who's going to help them. But in reality, what they did was not necessarily the best thing to do. We cannot run away from problems. And seen it happen so many times, done it myself several times, tried to run away from problems. They, you can never run away from the problems. They always catch up with you at some point. And even if you think you got away with it, you know you haven't gotten away with it, and you're always worried that somebody's going to catch you anyway. So you, you still don't get away with it. You may not get punished by somebody else, but your own, your, your own spirit and soul punish you. Yeah. You've got to be careful. You're going to get caught. You're going to be careful. And it's much better just to turn around and say, I've got to face this. I'm going to turn around and face what is coming. And it's a lot easier to get, you know, face the music than to try to run from it. And here we see Saul telling these people, you know, hey, you're all trying to conspire against me. You know, this is paranoia. David's uh, conspiring against him. He's, he's now believing Jonathan's conspiring against him. Now he's going, all of you. And what is his accusation there? None of you told me that my son was in league with this David guy. <laughs> Uh, now, he knew that Jonathan and David liked each other and that they were together. Uh, but, you know, now he's blaming others. And this is the other thing that we do if we're trying to run from our problems, we blame others. It's that person's fault or it's that situation's fault or if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done this or if they hadn't led me down the wrong path. We need to be so careful of this. You know, the blame game has been around forever. It's nothing new. Adam and Eve played the blame game right from the very beginning. You know, God asked him, what have you done? And, you know, and, they, and uh, Adam, you know, kind of goes, you know, God, the woman that you gave me, God, both of you, you know, it's both of your guys' fault. I, I had nothing to do with this. If, if you hadn't given her to, her, her to me and she hadn't test, tested, tempted me, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been this way. So, you know, God, it's really your fault, but it's her fault too. And, of course, Eve blamed the serpent, you know, for her decision. You know, it's been going on forever. The first thing we do in the flesh in our sinful nature is blame someone else or something else. God is really not my fault. If all these circumstances hadn't happened to me, I would, I would be perfect. I wouldn't be sinning at all. And God says, no, you'd be sinning anyway. Just own up to the fact that you're sinning and let me change you. And we see this Saul's blaming everybody. It's not his fault, you know. And we do know that it is really Saul's fault that he's losing his kingdom. Remember, he was told to fight the Amalekites and kill every one of them. They didn't kill all the animals, and they didn't kill the king, and we're going to find out they didn't even kill all the Amalekites like they were supposed to. The Amalekites are going to come back to haunt uh, Saul and David later on in life, 
and they're going to they're going to be the problem in uh, Babylon when uh, Ruth is uh, with Esther is ruling. It's an Amalekite descendant who causes all the problems there. So we see if he had just done his job, <laughs> much of the people that caused them problems would not be there to cause problems. Consequence of disobedience. You know, long-term consequences in some cases. Uh, we see this happening in so many places. Abraham decided, because he was getting old and Sarah was getting old, to have a child with the Egyptian maid. He ends up having Ishmael, and Ishmael has caused problems in the Middle East ever since with all of his descendants. He took Lot with him out of the Ur of Chaldees, and Lot has two sons through incest that become Ammon and Moab, who are problems and sides of thorns in the flesh of Israel for thousands of years. All because of his disobedience. If he had left Lot back where he was supposed to, because God said, leave your family behind. You, know, you and Sarah, come on out. And yet he didn't do it, and that caused him two enemies. Then he, then he decided he couldn't wait for God to give him his son through his wife and decided to do it on his own and ended up with a whole slew of enemies of Israel. You know, all because of sin. And his sin has caused 4,500 years worth of trouble for his descendants. Just a, just a minor problem. All he did was have sex with a, with a slave and make her a concubine for him. And his wife told him to, you know, have, I can't have children, go have a child by, by her. And that action has caused problems for over four and a half millennia. Consequence has, a sin has consequences. And we need to really realize that sometimes they're long-term consequences. There are families that have had consequences that have lasted generation after generation after generation because of a sinful lifestyle. And we need to be very careful about our, this. God can break those consequences. He can step in and give mercy. But we need to deliver to him and stand up and say, God, you know, hey, I've messed up. I've messed up. The family's messed up. I'm, I'm asking you to help and be ready to do this. And Saul is blaming them all. And he says, you've all conspired against me. None of you feel sorry for me. Everything about Saul was me. Now, if it didn't please him, it wasn't any good. And when you're living for yourself, nothing is ever enough. The flesh is never satisfied with anything that comes its way. It might be for a short period of time. You, know, you get a brand new car and it smells good and there's not a scratch on it and it runs real well and it has everything you want because you bought it brand new and you bought what you wanted. And after a year, two years, couple months if you, if you get scratched up or banged up. It's no longer great because all of a sudden there's new stuff that you really think you really want and you're no, no longer happy with what you had. If you're into alcohol, drugs and stuff, you know, what used to be good for you doesn't satisfy and you need more and more of it to get that same feeling out of it. You know, and that happens with any sin. You know, Sin has its pleasure and it loses its pleasure and you need more of that sin, whatever that sin is. And Saul is all about himself. 
You know, if, he, if, if Saul's not happy, nobody else is going to be happy, and he's doing everything for himself, and it's never going to make him happy. True happiness does come out when we minister to others, when we serve others and try to help them. That is when true pleasure comes out, because I can tell you the best thing in the world is when I see others grow. I see others get closer to God. I see others start reading the Bible and, and following. I see others getting rewarded. That's fun. That is fulfilling. And the other side of it is it's going to be rewarded, especially if you're doing it for the right reasons and not just selfish reasons of seeing everybody grow. But Saul's saying, you know, hey, what's, you know, none of you have warned me. None of you have, have taken pity on me. None of you are doing any of this. And verse 9, then answered Doeg. Who remembers who Doeg is? He's the shepherd at the priest place that saw David. Yeah, he's a snitch. <laughs> so answered Doeg, the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse come into Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him, the, gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So here, he's giving a half-truth. Okay, He did see David. Okay, and the priest did give David food and the sword, but he's leaving out a very important part of David's statement to the priest. You know, where he said he was on business for Saul. And oftentimes, when people play this game that goes on, they leave out the most important parts of the truth. And this is something if, if he'd have told Saul the whole truth, the priest might not have gotten into quite as much trouble because it would have been David, David's fault. It's still David's fault for lying, but as far as King Saul is concerned, these guys are aiding and betting enemy number one. And you know, we talked about this. You know, David was probably public enemy number one in Gath, but he was also public enemy number one to King Saul. And I can imagine there were probably posters all over the place saying, you know, reward 10,000 shekels for the, for the delivery of David. Uh, you know, and I was speculating, but I can picture that kind of thing going on. Saul wanted David, and these people kept reporting to him where David was at. And Doeg says, you know, hey, I saw, I saw him. He went to the priest, and the priest he inquired of God, told him, told him what was going on, and he gave him food, and he gave him a sword. Now, this just confirms to Saul that the priests now were out to get him. Okay, not only were, he's blaming all of his, his tribe, you're out to get me, my son's out to get me, David's out to get me, now the priests are out to get me? He's getting more and more isolated in his mind. And the priests aren't out to get him, David's not out to get him, and his people probably aren't out to get him. And his son really isn't out to get him, he's just saying, God has blessed David, I'm going to honor David. You know, Jonathan probably is the closest one to being the one conspiring him, but he's giving away his throne, basically. You know, because David's not trying to take Saul's life. You know, and it's an amazing thing. Saul did not know David's heart, and David's saying, I'm not going to go against Saul because he is God's anointed man. I'm not going to touch him. And he says over and over, touch not God's anointed. Because he knew that it was a critical thing to go against somebody that God had picked. And Saul never understood that until very late. And even then, David didn't go back into the palace. He stayed away away from Saul, even when Saul had said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to chase you anymore. But, you know, here he said, he gets half a story. 
half, half the story from, from this man. Now, whether he knew the first part, I don't know. You know. He knew that David got the food and everything, and if he knew that much, he probably knew the whole story. But he twists the story. And this happens so often. You know, whether we're trying to stay out of trouble for our consequence, we twist the story. We might not lie. Nothing in, nothing in Doeg's uh, statement is really a lie. David did go to the priest. They did, they did uh, inquire of the Lord. They did give him food. They did give him a sword. But it's not the whole truth. And we talked about this. In Deuteronomy, God says that the whole truth is what we're supposed to speak. And that means everything. And in our legal system, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But if your lawyers will tell you, say, answer only what you have to when they talk to you. Don't tell them the whole truth. And we, we swear to do what God says, and then we, do, we talk in, in the way man tells us to talk. And not a good thing. And basically, we've committed perjury when we don't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which we have promised to do, because God has said that. And Doeg is not telling the whole truth. He's telling the part that he thinks Saul wants to hear. Yep, David's out to get you. And hey, by the way, those priests are out to get you too. You know, and maybe he's afraid of Saul. I don't know. He didn't have to say anything. But you know, maybe he's afraid of Saul. Saul's got his temper running. And his temper ran quite frequently. You know, David would play his harp and usually calm him down. And David's not there to play the harp and calm him down. And here he's angry at everybody. And Doeg says, you know, hey, yeah, <laughs> not, a, not only all these guys, the priests. And the priests are out to get you. Verse 11. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahimtub, and all his father's house, and the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, you son of Ahitub. And he answered and said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said, And why have you conspired against me, you and that and the son of Jesse, that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among your servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire the Lord for him? Be it far from me, let not the king impute anything to, unto a servant, nor to all the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, all this, less or more. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. Okay. Can you imagine this meeting? The entire family of priests is called to come before the king. And they very obediently come, not even knowing anything about what's coming. David told him he's on a mission for Saul. Now, we, we, we read in there that he, he kind of maybe was a little concerned about it, but not enough to really say, you know, David's a liar, even though he was. Uh, and he comes before Saul, and Saul says, you've conspired against me because you helped David. And this is, this is something that would be, from the, the priest's perspective, you know, as he says, hey, David's your son-in-law. You send him out to do all these businesses. You know, you know, basically, hey, he told me he was out on business for the king. And who was I to not believe him? And so he's saying this, and the king doesn't buy it for a moment, even though it's, it's the truth. He's just out. Everybody's out to get me. And this is the problem when we look at something that goes on and people are in sin. When you're in the middle of a sin, 
you really think that all people are like you? People who lie easily believe that all people lie. Those who steal easily believe that all people steal. And that's really how they justify it. Everybody does it. You know, everybody's sleeping around. Everybody steals. Everybody drinks. You know, everybody who's anybody does <laughs> all these things. And they justify it by, if I'm doing it, then I'm just like everybody else. So everybody's doing it. And anytime you say everybody's doing anything, you're in trouble in the first place. Because it's not a true statement. Uh, there's always somebody. You know, the old, old thing, you know, well, everybody's doing it. Well, if everybody jumped off the, the cliff, would you jump off? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd be a lemon and jump off with them. And, you know, uh, but, you know, it is true that we so often want to look and we try to justify. And we'll find people who do what we're doing. Okay. Uh, and I've said, we, you know, out of the prison, most of those guys think they're pretty good guys. They will all tell me that they're pretty good guys. They're better than most people they know. Okay, they're just comparing themselves to all the other prisoners. You know, really not the greatest standard, but you know, not just them, but we all do that. Well, you know, uh, I'm better than a lot of people I know. Well, let's consider the people that are more righteous than you. Oh, I don't want to think about them because then I really look bad. You know, ultimately, we need to compare ourselves to God. God is completely righteous and holy. So righteous and holy that he says one speck disqualifies us from being able to say we deserve anything from him. And this is something we need to really understand about sin. All sin in God's sight is awful. Now we as humans, we have this little hierarchy. Well, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal from anybody. I, you, know, you know, we go down our little list and you know, we get down to gossip and lying and say, well, those aren't really aren't those big. I, I commit those ones, but I don't commit any of the, the big sins. When God says the things he hates, he goes, lying lips, those who spread gossip, those who spread dissent, you know, those are on the bottom of our list, and God says, I hate those things. And those are the things we kind of put down at the bottom of the list, saying, no, they're not that big. They're not that big a deal. And that doesn't mean that God's belittling the other stuff. It's just saying, those things you think are small, I hate those as well. When we really start to understand God's attitude toward sin, we can really start to understand God's view of us. You know, as long as we're trying to justify our sin, it's not going to work out. God's going to say, no, we're not justifying your sin. Your sin is awful. It is so awful that Jesus went to the cross to die for it so that we could be forgiven, but there's still consequences even though you're forgiven. And we've got to understand, and part of true spiritual maturity is when we start to recognize how awful sin is. And this is something that I've been seeing over and over in my life. You know, every time I knock things out of my life that are sin, God shows me other things that need to be knocked out. You know, and it's like, God, you know, how deep is this pit? And he goes, well, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And I'm going, God, I didn't want to hear that because every time, every time I knock some things out, he shines a little brighter light into my heart and says, oh, there's some more stuff we're going to get out. You know, now, the world would look at it and say, well, the stuff God's taking out of your heart is really not that big a deal. No, it's a really big deal when you understand God's attitude towards sin. Now, when we're first saved, we're looking at, God, you know, I've got lying lips, I've got desires to do all these sinful, you know, really big sinful things, get them out of my life. And we get them out of our life and we start, I've got my whole life put together and God says, uh -uh, let's, show, let's show you the next part. Let's show you the next part. Oh, well, we always have it in our flesh. We always have that, uh, where, so we can't, 
Yeah, we always have sin in our heart because we are sinful beings, and the moment we will have that sin in our in our in, our, in the center of our being until we are either res, uh, uh, raptured or die, and God gives us our new glorified body without the sin nature. So yes, we have a desire to sin, no matter what. You know, we, we're getting in trouble. Our immediate desire is to blame somebody else or to lie about it. Just an automatic thing. You know, we, we as parents try to teach our kids, you know, tell the truth and your punishment is less. And yet as adults, we still do the same thing. Try to get out of it, hide it, run from it, you know, tell a lie about it, blame somebody else for it. It's not my fault. You know, God, if you didn't, if I didn't have this sin nature, it's all your fault, God. I've got this sin nature and you didn't take it away, so it's your fault, God. Or God, you know, this person, I just, I was hanging around with them and all of a sudden I found myself in this sin. It's, you know, their fault. We need to be able to take that personal responsibility for our sin and say, God, <laughs> it's sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And the word confess is homologeo, to say the same thing as. God, you say what I'm doing is sin, I'm calling it a sin. Many people will go, God, I made a mistake. Well, duh, you made a mistake, but it's a sin. Get over the mistake part and call it what it is. It's a sin. And there's consequences. Homo, homo logeo. No, homo same, logeo speak. Speak the same thing as. In other words, God calls it a sin. I'm going to call it a sin. I'm not going to call it a mistake. I'm not going to call it an error. I'm not going to call it a slip up. I'm, God calls it a sin. I say, God, I have sinned. And then God says, okay, I can forgive that. As long as I'm trying to justify myself, God says, no, that's not, you're not going to be forgiven during the time that you're trying to justify yourself. And this is why it's important to confess our sins. God, I, I have made a mistake. I have sinned. I, am, I, I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve mercy. And I put my feet at, my, myself at your feet for whatever you're going to do. And that's hard to do. It really is hard to do because our flesh is fighting against that. Well, if I can just blame somebody else, if I can just run away from the problem, if I can just get away from what's going on, then I can escape the punishment. And God just chases after us until we finally get caught. One way or the other, we get caught. Whether it's through a guilty conscience, like I said, even if we think we got away with it, we know that we did it. I can't remember something like first screen, I just thought it was the other day. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we know that we did it, and we know that somebody might be looking and somebody might know. One of the children's stories I heard the other day was, you know, this guy got away with blaming somebody else for, for a problem and, you know, and got rewards and everything for, for, it, for it. But he always remembered how guilty he felt about everything about it. So every time he saw the reward, he remembered the guilt that went along with the lie and everything. You know, and the point of it was, is even when you think you get away with it, you still pay a penalty that is hard. And, you know, God knows, we know, and eventually it'll get to us until we finally have to own up and say, God, it's a sin. And this is the most important place. We will never have victory until we admit that we have done wrong and accept it. This is the point of all the 12 steps, all the self-help groups, always start with the very first statement of admit that you've got a problem. As long as I'm trying to blame somebody else or blame circumstances or say that it's okay, 
I'm never going to address the problem. Because I'm always saying, it's, it's that person's fault. It's that person's fault. It's, you know, if these circumstances, you know, God, you know, I, I, I haven't drunk so, in so long, but it was just such a bad day. Myself, and I just found myself drinking to, get, to forget. You know, but if it wasn't for those circumstances, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been there. No. You know, or if I wasn't hanging around with this person or doing this or watching, watching these shows that glorified that sin. You know, and we just blame anything and everything. Now, granted, those things do play an impact. If you're hanging out with the wrong people, you are going to sin. Just a matter of time. Very, very, very rare do we, does, does the Christian pull the sinner up out of the, out of the gutter. They usually fall down into the gutter with them. Very, very rare, and this is what happens a lot of times when, you, when I've counseled, especially teenagers, well, you know, uh, or young, young people, you know, I, I know that I can convert him or her. You know, we're going to go out on a date, we're going to get married, and I know that I can convert them. As you never see them back in church or reading their Bible or studying because they got pulled down. You know, and it very rarely works the other way around. Bad company will pervert your good intentions. Then we have our, flint, our, our sin nature that wants to sin anyway. So we have a big, big enough problem. We're not saying there's a problem. And here we see this poor, this poor prophet. You know, all he did was help your, 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 your servant, your faithful servant. You know, he came and said he was on job for you. And, and, uh, you know, and his answer was, you know, who is so faithful among your servants? He's the son's king. You know, the king's son-in-law, he goes at your bidder and, and is honored in your home. Okay, you know, he's a special guy, you know, why would I doubt his word? He says, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me, let not the king impute anything done to his servant, nor to the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of this. In other words, I didn't know what was going on, and as far as I knew, he was on business for you. And this is what he's saying in very flowery, flowery language. You know, as far as I knew, you know, hey, this is, he's your, your man. You send him out to do the, the chiefest of jobs. You send him out on business all the time. You know, he said he was on business for you, and I just helped him out. And uh, this is what ends up happening because the king says, surely you shall die. Now, now King Saul, again, we, we know he's paranoid. He's not listening to the, pro the prophet at all because as far as he's concerned, everybody's conspiring against him. So every word that the, pre the prophet is speaking is a lie. Why? Because he lies. <laughs> you know, he's paranoid. He's, he's believing that everybody's out against him, so the, prophets, uh, the priests have to be out to get him, just like everybody else because they helped David. And nobody's out to get him. He's just seeing enemies around every corner. And that doesn't put us in a good place either when we're seeing enemies around every corner. Uh, because then we don't really begin to even trust God. And Saul is not trusting God. He's been rejected by God. He has no place to trust. And because he, has, he can't trust in God because God has rejected him, he also then doesn't reject any of the people. He doesn't accept any of the people. Major problems. And verse 17 and the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priest of the Lord, because their hand is also with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall on the priest of the Lord. Saul goes, kill him. You know, hey, you're, you're my bodyguard, go get him. 
and none of them moved to kill the priest. Now, I'm not sure why. Maybe they understood that the priest, you know, they listened to what the priest said, and they knew the priests were innocent. They knew that Saul was being paranoid. And it could just be, you don't touch the priest. Okay? This is something that is very important. You don't trust, you don't, you don't go out and kill the, pe- the priest. And yet, Saul is telling them, go kill these guys. They're out. They knew that they were doing wrong. He said he wasn't doing wrong. Saul is absolutely convinced that they were doing wrong because Doeg told only half the truth. David showed up and they helped him. Didn't tell him about David's David's lie to them, even though the priest now did. He he could have turned to Doeg and said, you know, is this what happened? And Doeg should have been able to tell tell the truth. But Doeg's a scoundrel in and of himself. He's looking for reward. You know, he's looking for that you know, reward for turning, turning in knowledge of David. Because, <laughs> again, we look at it as being something brand new. It's not brand new. It's been around forever. You know, give us knowledge of the whereabouts of so-and-so and get, get your reward. And I'm sure that was out for David. You know, yeah, help me get him and you'll be rewarded. He did it for Goliath. Why wouldn't he do it for David? You know, hey, if anybody helps kill, kills Goliath, you know, your family will... You know, be married to you know, you know, get you married to Michael, and and you'll have no taxes to pay, and your family will be well rewarded. I'm sure he was doing it with David. Hey, whoever turns David in, this is your reward. You know, probably not being his son-in-law and everything, but you know, there was there would have been some reward for them. And uh, we see that nobody wants to slay the priests. In verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, "Turn you and fall upon the priest." And Doeg the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priest and slew on that day 85 people that did wear the linen ephod. And Nob the city of the priest smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and suckling, ass and, and, dung, and oxen and sheep with the edge of the sword. David's lie cost 85 priests their life and the entire destruction of the city, which is with an unnamed number of uh, unnumbered number of people that died because of David's lie. What consequence do we have when we, when we sin? We never know the full consequences of our lie. I am absolutely sure David never expected all the priests to die when he told him he was on the king's business. He was just saying, well, it's expedient that I get some food and, and, and a weapon, so I'm just going to tell him I'm the king, on, on the king's business and went about his business, and it cost an entire family of priests their lives. And their city was totally destroyed with all the women and children and, and everybody that was in that city and all the animals. The consequence of one supposedly little sin. And, you know, we need to be so careful in our own lives. We never know what one sin in our life will mean in the long run. David never expected the lie to go that far, never expected the lie to cost cost all the priests their lives. He just was doing something that was expedient at the moment. I need, some, I need food and a weapon, and I'm not going to tell them that I'm running from Saul because then they're not going to help me. And I'm not going to steal it. He goes, so I'll just tell a, a little lie. I'm on the king's business. I've been on the king's business a lot, so isn't, they're going to believe me. And it ended up costing an entire family their life because of David's lie. And this is something we see so frequently. Somebody gets drunk, gets behind the wheel of a car, and ends up killing somebody. They get to go to jail. That family lost 
lost a family member or at least an injured family member at the very least. You know, their family suffers. His, you know, the person who got behind the wheel, their family suffers. They suffer. You know, nobody ever ex thinks about the full scope of suffering. You know, we count our sin and saying, David's going, well, you know, if I, you know all I got to do is go confess to God that I lied and it'll be okay. Didn't help the priest. Didn't help the priest and their, and their family and their city. And consequences are so severe so often. And we need to be ready to count the cost. And this is why sin is such a serious issue. We usually will think, well, God, you know, I, I, can, I can handle the consequences. I think I know what the consequences. I go out and get drunk. All I have to do is have a headache and feel miserable the next morning. Well, that's if you don't do something stupid while you're drunk and if you don't get behind the wheel and hurt somebody. And if, you know, at the very least, you wasted all your money buying the alcohol while you were getting drunk. You know, all kinds of ramifications of it that are more than most people anticipate. And it is such a serious thing. And we need to really understand, God, keep me from sin. You know, God, uh, you know, I just said, I just said these, spread these rumors with people, and it's no, no big deal. Well, God says those have consequences. And God is looking at the consequences. All right, verse 20. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abba Athar, escaped and fled after David. And Abba Athar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priest. And David said unto Abba Athar, I knew it the day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the, the people of your father's house. Abide with me, fear not, and he that seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be in safeguard. So David gets to find out the full consequence of his actions. Eighty-five plus people dead because of his lie. And this is a serious thing, and David's going to carry the weight of that for a, a long time. You know, he loves the people. He's going to be their king. But he also, I think, genuinely loves people and cares about people. And here he has a family that he's directly responsible for their death. And he's going to carry that, that burden. And he says, you know, you just stay with me. You know, Saul wants you, but he also wants me. So as long as you're with me, I'm going to protect you. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to protect you even if I have to die first. You know, he's going, I'm going to safeguard you. You're not going to die at Saul's hand unless Saul takes me out first. Just stay with me. But David recognizes the consequences of his sin. And it really hurts him because he says, you know, I have occasioned, I am the cause of these men's death. Yeah. And uh, to really understand, usually we don't understand the severity of the sin until after we get through it and we see the consequences. But we really need to really start understanding whenever I'm tempted to sin, there's a consequence. And it's going to be more than I can ever imagine that consequence to be. Even if I get away with it, I'm going to know that I deserve punishment and have problems with it for the rest of my life. So that even that is a consequence. Having the guilt of having gotten away with it or thinking you got away with it. God knows. Maybe the people didn't know, but God knows. God knows when we tempt somebody else into sin. God knows when we fall into sin or, or say that we fall into sin. <laughs> He knows, even if nobody else ever knows. This is why the thought life for those who are mature can be a big problem. 
You know, God, nobody else knows that I have these thoughts in my mind. You know, God, I, I would, I'd have killed that person if I just, you know, let loose of my temper. Or God, I would, you know, I really wanted to lie to that person, but I didn't. God, I had really lustful thoughts. I shouldn't have. God, I'm into whatever. I don't actually act it out. But God says, I know your thoughts. And even though we think we get away with nobody knows, God knows. And we know that we're guilty, and we know that we're really not getting away with it in the long run, and that it needs to come out. And God's saying, confess, say it's a sin. David saw the, the cost of his sin. And David's kind of impulsive. We're going to see that all of his life he's fairly impulsive. And this Im impulse of his ended up with great, great tragedy. And uh, one of the many things that when God said, you've got blood on your hands, David, it might not have just been war. It could have been things like the 85 priests that were killed, the, the, the blood of, of uh, Bathsheba's husband, you know, all these different things that Uriah, that uh, he had blood on his hands beyond just the fact that he was a conquering general fighting all the time. He had a lot of blood on his hands for his sins that caused problems. His lack of discipline on his, on his sons when, when his son rebelled against him and cost people their lives. And when he numbered the people and thousands of people died because of his sin, he had blood on his hands because of his sin. And you know, we need to be careful. Maybe, maybe we're not going to have blood on our hands, physical blood, but we may have a lot of people whose lives are damaged by our sin. And our testimony may be damaged. You know, this is the thing for us as Christians. We have a testimony before God of how a Christian is supposed to live. And when they see us sin, that damages our testimony and gives people a reason not to accept Christ. Well, you know, those Christians, they're, they're no better than we are. Well, we're not any better than they are, but, but yes, we're supposed to live righteous lives before God so that people can say, yeah, that's how a Christian is supposed to live. Jesus said, they'll know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. And that love builds up, that love edifies, that love does not seek to harm other people and will lead us into obedience with God. And it's very important, this obedience, that we follow God in all things. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. Lord, teach us to look at our lives and be very careful about sin. Lord, show us that sin has consequence. Remind us when we're ready to sin that sin has consequence and help us to make godly decisions. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.